It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from the Edinburgh Fringe. Please, welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming. Good didn't, crowd, didn't Jeff. Know if anybody would. I know. I went a bit prepubescent there. I'm not quite sure what happened to my voice, but here we are. <laughs> um, so, thank you for coming. Uh, Ed, you've been in Edinburgh for a couple of days. I have. And, and you've made quite a splash in the time you've been here. Um, I've, got, I've got a slide to show have you. you. That sounds ominous. Yeah. <laughs> now, this is a, a picture that cropped up on Twitter. Uh, it's from yeah. I Spy MP. Do you want to describe to me what we're looking at here? Well, I was sort of thinking that maybe I could be in a kind of Hamlet uh, show <laughs> and that the hot dog was the skull. Uh, to be or not to be, kind of all that. When will you learn your lesson <laughs> about eating in public? Yeah. Especially pork-based <laughs> products. I know. It's not great, is it? Uh, so I, I do think you look quite actually there. That's a, I look quite uh, actually. Actually, yeah. Well, I think the glasses suit you. Is that a word, actually? P- possibly not. Right, okay. <laughs> I think context implied yeah, yeah. meaning. Um, so the last time you were in Edinburgh, yeah. can, you, can you remember the last time you were here? Yeah, I was. I did a um, walkabout at a shopping centre. Oh, we, we've got a picture of that as well, actually, <laughs> as it as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. Do you want to tell me what's happening in, in this picture? Uh, I think my strong recommendation: if you're ever the leader of a political party and think about doing a walkabout, don't do it in the middle of a shopping centre with lots of people shouting at you. So was uh, this like Beatlemania? Were you being no, mocked? no, no? I, it was. It was during the referendum campaign, and uh, there were some people who sort of weren't so keen on me. I think, to put it sort of mildly, uh, <laughs> you know, the the thing I. I sort of felt about the occasion was that I remained relatively calm, but when you see the journalist looking alarmed, you know you're sort of slightly, <laughs> you know it's kind of slightly alarming right. sort of situation. We should tell you what we're going to be talking about today, then. Yeah, and we're going to be talking to an absolutely brilliant lady called Karen McCluskey, who some of you um, will have heard of. She is the chief executive of Community Justice Scotland, and she pioneered a new approach. This was a few years ago to tackling gang violence, youth violence, knife crime in Scotland. And it has been very successful. And lots of other people around the world are now looking at it. And now she's moving on, having tackled that problem, to tackling the prison population and the way that the criminal justice system works. And honestly, she's an incredibly inspiring person. I think you're going to really like what she's got to say. So we're going to be talking to Karen in a moment. And then at the end of the show, we are joined by a very funny comedian. She's got a show called Politics for Bitches at the Gilded Balloon. Somebody uh, gasped. Yeah. Nobody gasped for <laughs> no, us. No, no. Where was the gasp? I don't know. Anyway, joining <laughs> us to pitch us some ideas, we're joined by Louisa Omilan. So, we're going inv- to invite Karen. Yeah. Uh, big hand, everyone, for Karen McCluskey. Yeah. 
Now, now um, Karen, we are honestly really delighted to have you here. I- I'm sure there'll be lots of people who will want to sort of hear more about what, what you've done in Scotland and this pioneering approach. But just tell us a little bit to start with about how you got into this sort of situation of being head of community justice Scotland but also tackling all of these kind of issues of violent crime what was your career that led you up to this point I failed at a lot of things in life good to know so I was a pretty (laughs) I was a pretty rotten nurse I did train as a nurse the NHS is better off without me and then I trained as a forensic psychologist right and and then I went into the police and intelligence right so a bit of circuitous route, but it sort of gave me a big background. And you were then put in charge, am I right, of Strathclyde and their approach to violent crime? Well, they didn't really have one. I'd been in West Mercia Police, and I think we'd had about three or four murders in, in a couple of That's sort of, of Miss Marple territory. It is Miss Marple. It is, it is really lovely. Yeah. Um, it's very chocolate box. And then I came up to Strathclyde in 2002, and it was just overwhelming. You know that? It was just been... It wasn't like there's been a murder. It was been like there's been another murder and another murder and another murder. And we were just inured to it, you know? It was... Um, I think I said to you earlier, I um, I think we got a three-line whip to come down when Peckham had had three murders in a weekend. We'd had four and it hadn't even appeared in the newspapers. You know, so we just became... And it was the worst. Scotland had the worst murder rate in the whole of Europe. Is it that did. right? It was, a, it was a really interesting and thing. There's like a UN League table. So there was a UN League table. And, and what it said was, there was that Scotland was the most violent country in Europe and that Glasgow was the most violent city. And you can imagine that Visit Scotland was bloody delighted. You know? Yeah. Um, it's not great, is it no, really? No, it wasn't great. And, and the thing is, it's like anything else in, in the country. You can do two things when you see stats. You can either deny it and say, oh, well, all these other countries aren't doing it right or you can say my name is Scotland and we have a problem and we really did I mean we drink to get drunk we had a challenge with knives and we certainly had a challenge with gangs and I went away and I took three weeks holiday because I'm really sad and I wrote a report for the chief constable and this was like 2000 and 2003 and and pretty much what it said was you know boss we have filled the jails that's not a great measure of success but we've made absolutely hee-haw difference to preventing crime and he that he haw means he haw means nothing. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a Scottish terminology. And, that you know, wasn't I mean, for me. That was our podcast listeners in England who need the translation. Uh, we can have subtitles later. Exactly. Yeah. And and you know, and I just said, look, we have to stop looking at it like a criminal justice problem, and we need to look at it like an infection, like public health. You know, so that you grow up in a violent, dysfunctional family where you might have drugs and domestic abuse, and your parents might be in prison, and you catch it. And you go out in the streets and then you find other boys and girls just like you and you pass it on. And, and then you get clustering in it. And it often operates very similar to a disease process. But it means when you start to look at it like that, you can start to think and, about how and, do we prevent it. And just to give a sense of the scale, it was like a knife attack every six hours, was it? No, we had... Um, so for those who are not Scottish people and who don't live in the West, we have quite a unique problem here. So we have what's called the Glasgow Smile. It's pretty much a serious maxillofacial injury where they put the knife up the face and, you know, it's, it's right the way up. I mean, it's catastrophic. You'll suffer 40 years worth of deprivation because you'll look at the job you want or the girlfriend you want, or the, you know... And, and so there was one every six hours, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And then obviously we had the murders, and underneath that, attempt murders. We had um, over 3,000 people who were sort of touching gangs. Although I always say I don't really talk about gangs because I talk about violence, because it was about violence. 
And how did you go about starting to think about how do we tackle this problem? Did you draw inspiration from other countries? Well, we didn't really have the internet in Strathclyde Police at that time. I mean, I know that for all of the young people here, you think that, that, but it, that there was a time when we didn't. Do you know, we had a... This is going to sound dreadful. We had a violence reduction, which we were called the Violence Reduction Unit. And we had a bit of a subtext was, no making it any worse, you know? Because right. there was... People were pretty defeatist about it, weren't well, they? Well, they were. I mean, literally. I mean, I went to see someone who was really senior in the prison service. And my um, colleague, John, and I, who um, we started together. You know, and I went and said, look, we want to do violence reduction. We want to change Scotland. I want to make this the safest country in the world. And the guy who we met gave us a cup of tea and a biscuit, and he said, it's too big, don't bother. And we never went back to see him. Never. Because... There were so many negative architects out there who would otherise a whole group of people who were really disadvantaged and alienated and hopeless. And they just thought, you know, it was defeatist. And I, I couldn't be bothered. So I just didn't go back to see him. And what happened next? Well, we ju- we're just allowed to start. I mean, it's really interesting when, if you've got a boss, so I had a chief constable called Sir Willie Ray. And he was very much near the end of his tenure. And he was just really, he just said, on you go. You know, and he put us slightly outside policing so we could be really innovative, really different, um, and we could try stuff that failed. So we did, I mean, one of the big things, and we did some really, we tightened up some of our policing because it just wasn't that great. And, but we did, we did a big gang calling. So um, in the States, one of the things that we did sort of have a look at, I'd been over in Boston and Chicago and doing some gang work over there, and they did Boston Ceasefire. And I looked at these young African-American men. But say that, what that is? It's that? called Boston Ceasefire. Right. And it was just, I'll tell you slightly, quickly what it was about. Yeah. I'll make this sound really simple, and it was incredibly complex. So, I mean, but the young African-American guys were almost exactly the same as my young Glaswegians. You know, the colour was different, but the hopelessness and alienation and all the stuff they came was exactly the same. And so what we did was I went to the boss and I said, look... We're going, to, we're going to get all these guys into a courtroom, like hundreds of them at a time. A courtroom. A courtroom. So right. we got them all in, so we got them in for the jails. All these the guys are people convicted. Who'd been in ga- yeah, who'd been in, ga- who'd been in gangs. We then went out to the guys who we hadn't arrested, because remember, we catch the feckless and the stupid. You know, There's loads of people out there. I mean, yeah. we don't catch everybody. That's why Donald Trump's in trouble, I Indeed. think. Uh, yeah. uh, it's him next. Yeah. So, but, you know, and so we, we got them all into a courtroom. And literally, what we did was we had them all in. We had the chief constable, who was the next chief constable, who was a bit shorter at the time. And we flashed all their pictures around the wall. And you could see them all pointing. Oh, look, there's me, you know, like CCTV. Just the convicted people. Everybody, CCTV, gang fighting in the streets. And we said, look, I don't want to go to your house and tell your mother you've just been killed. Or go to your house and just tell her that, you know, we've just arrested you for a murder. Because can I tell you, sometimes the look in the parents' face is exactly the same. Horror. I mean, I never want to meet another murder victim's family. I know I will. I just don't. You know, it's a catastrophic series of events. And, you know, people used to say, where are you going to start? Because it's so complex and so big. And, you know, you just have to start someplace. And we said to the guys, you need to stop. As of 12 midnight, it stops. The next one of you offends, we're going to take out your whole group. And then, but we said, but there's a way out. If you want out of this... Here's one number you can phone it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We'll come out and meet you. You know, we rehoused people. We got them into trauma, training. We, you know, we got them into jobs. If you go to the if you go to the Edinburgh Military Tattoo, anybody wants to go. All the guys who are moving, all the scenery around on the tattoo, are my ex-gang members. 
You know, the best way... The, I suppose the best way to stop a gun or a gang or a knife is a job. Absolutely. I have so many people who are so far away from the employment market. And so they all just, came into, just on this point about the room, they all came into the room. They all came into the room. You had testimony from a victim's Hundreds. mother. So we had a victim's mama, a lady who um, I'm friendly with, whose, whose boy was stabbed to death in a gang-related um, murder. And she, it's really interesting because she stood up in front of the room and, I mean, it was really quiet. And she said, you boys might not care about yourself, but let me tell you about my son. And I go into his room every single day. And I will never get over this. And it's really interesting. All the guys out there, I mean, you might look at them and you might see offenders. I also see victims. Most of them have been a victim one week, an offender the next, a victim the next week. But you could hear them sniffing in the back of the room. Because they all love their mums. They do. And you know, and I'm not saying that their parents can always do the right things for them, but they did. And then we had a surgeon who stood up and the surgeon pretty much flashed up all the pictures. He said, I'm a, you know, I, I specialise in babies' cleft palates. I've actually got a waiting list now because if you've got this massive facial injury, you go to the very top of the list. All the intensive care beds will be taken up. Your, you know, your high dependency unit beds will be taken up. If you're waiting for a planned operation, you'll be bumped down the list. So you know what I mean? It's got, it's got secondary effects. And they couldn't even look at some of the pictures because they were... I mean, they are horrible. So, they're not, so the notion that these are hard um, men or young you know, teenagers, actually, you could get through to them? See, the thing is, everybody's influenced by the media. So you see the pictures in the paper, you know, and they're normally, it's after an offence and it's a police photograph. Or you, you see it through the lens of the media. I've never met anybody whose story didn't start with, see when I was nine, see when I was five, see when I was seven. Their lives are catastrophic. I mean, let's not pretend that people's choices are created equally, because they're just not. You know, and I don't think I've ever met a clean skin who's committed, like, a horrible, violent offence. And and they were so hopeless and alien. We actually had to come up with a phrase, because you've got all the the World Health Organisation sort of tells you all the type of violence you can get, like, organised and whatever else. We actually had to come up with a term called recreational violence. We're just going out on a Thursday night, you know, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing. And we had such success through doing that. You know, people just wanted out. They wanted a different life. And they wanted hope. These boys don't care about death or prison. They want a reason to be cheerful. Can you, can you talk to us about the results you've had? Well, we've... Um, so we brought down violence. I mean, we're at some of the lowest records since records began for homicide, for murder... Um, we're at a 52%, we've reduced violence by 52%. There's a 56% reduction through people going in through A&E. Because you have to remember, only 30% of violence is reported to the police. So my measure was always, can I reduce the amount of people going through the emergency rooms? Right. So I set up a big charity called Medics Against Violence. So I've got doctors that go out to school and we intervene in the A&Es because that was a good measure. Because it's not about police stats, because nobody really trusts police stats, you know, including the public. Because when you're saying violence is up 5%, down 3%, up 6%, people are thinking, well, you're either lying or you're an idiot because you don't know what's happening here. Whereas those going through the A&E, you could really intervene. So it's been an interesting... And where, are, where is Scotland now in the, the lead table? Oh, we're way, oh, we're way, way down. I mean, listen, we're, I'm not complacent. We've still got too many people in jail. You know, we've still got too many kids' lives who are blighted. And we've still got too many people who, you know... Once you pick up a conviction, it's really difficult to get into a job, you know. 
and you're, you know, so we almost condemn you to life and benefits, you know. You serve a sentence, but your sentence is really lifelong. But uh, that's what I was going to ask. So the people who ring the hotline, mm-hmm. who rang the hotline, does it still exist, the hotline? Um, no, no, we don't, we don't do that sort of thing. We've got lots and lots of other things. Right. I mean, I've got a cast of thousands behind me, but, teachers. And, but the, but the, the approach is still similar, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the approach is still similar. You know, we have, one, we have stuff that goes on in Glasgow right now. And, and what was it, what's the experience been of the people who sort of not exactly turn themselves in but try to turn themselves around? Oh, God. I could be here all day. I am... Um, it's my fav- people always ask me what my favourite bit of the job is. Yeah. And it's normally when I'm walking past someone and I see someone I know in an old life and they're walking past me in the street and they've maybe got a new partner and maybe a kid. And they, we, we don't look at each other, we don't acknowledge each other. And they'll text me that night and say, look, I'm married, I've got a family. Wow. You know, and I've got a job. And that, that's a really nice wow. bit because, because it's like, when I talked about violence as an infection, success is also an infection. You know, you can pass it on. Because if you've seen someone succeed, you know that you get these guys and you think, oh, he'll... I mean, somebody had once said to me after a, a murder of a 16-year-old and he'd bled to death in a gutter. It was a long time ago and I thought this was a Rosa Parks moment. And somebody had said to me, um, I wondered why nothing happened. Because it was horrible, you know. He'd bled to death, crying for his mum. And nothing happened. And I went out to the area and I said to this lady, who was probably in her 60s at the bus stop, I said... Uh, uh, what's that about? And she said, oh, he was all he was ever going to be. So you're almost like making a value judgment about a, a young man based on pretty much poverty, you know? Poverty is a visible diversity up here. So it's, it's, a really, it's a really complex thing. But you just have to... I play like strategic whack-a-mole. You press one thing down, something else pops up. So you have to be always looking at what's the next bit. And one of the things that you said in an interview um, which attracted me uh, was that you said, you know, I'm not afraid to talk about failure. Uh, and I'm not afraid to learn from failure. Yeah, yeah that's... I failed spectacularly at things. I sort of took, me too, actually. Well, yeah. I took my... Uh, I uh, we can talk about this later. Um, I always thought, you know, if you're going to do something, you might as well fail spectacularly. You know, I mean, that's I... That's good, that's good. Yeah, might, I like I that. Mean, so... Actually, no, I really shouldn't talk about this, but um, so we had lots of CCTV. So, I mean, the guys all know this. Like, see, when you get a fight about to start, you see the big arm movements. People start to measure out. The brow goes down. And we could see this in CCTV. So I thought, I'm going to build a laser. And I'm going to put it on top of a CCTV camera. And when we see these big movements, I'm going to put a big dot in their chest. So they see they're being... So at this point, I was having a philosophical thought experiment with myself. <laughs> so I, um, I then phoned up the defence agency. It sounds a bit sort of Mission Impossible. This. It does. And this is quite a long time ago. And I said, so I phoned up the defence agency and I said, can you build me a laser? And they were delighted. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, and it was to go... And it was like a light. And for people that don't know, in a fight situation, your vision's the most acute. You don't hear anything. It's a very primeval thing. So they built this, so I went down to pick up the light, and they said, right, we've got two here, green or blue. And I was like, oh. So it's, it's a Celtic Rangers thing. And anyway, that's so a we Scottish did, issue, it's I gather. a Scottish issue. Uh. And so we did, and, and that's what we did. So when the big lights went on, you know, like, so you started to see the big fights, and we put the light on them. Two things happened. Either they thought, oh, I'm getting, I'm getting taped here, and stopped, or... The majority, because it was Glasgow on a Saturday night, were too drunk and they were trying to wipe it off. You know? <laughs> so, and then we, you know, I mean, and then there was like, there was a whole range of things. It was a class two laser and there was a whole range of safety things. But, you know, it's, 
but you know, we've tried lots of things. I mean, everybody wants you to do knife amnesties. Let's put bins out. Well, that just doesn't work. I mean, you know, I mean, there's things that people want you to do because it, it seems like a big, you know, you can mm. put it in the papers, etc. Trying to do things that are a bit out there. Are, you know, is, is that a bit more difficult? I mean, we train all the dentists to intervene in the chair. Like, you know, so if you go in up in Scotland and you've got a tooth punched out, they'll say, this isn't an injury I would normally see in my chair. You're in a safe place. That's for women who've been domestically abused as well. Wow. We train the fire service because our fire service up here have been great until the hot weather, um, you know, because they've had loads of fires to put out. But they're no longer putting out chip pan fires because we have now embraced a healthier lifestyle. Um, LAUGHTER and, and, and we trained the fire officers because they were putting in smoke alarms in the house. And we then got them to intervene. So if they saw somebody with a bruise in their face, and particularly a woman, she was 87% likely to have been domestically abused if she had a, a bru- bruise in her face. So we did everybody. Teachers, try and keep kids in school because one more kid you keep in school is one less kid I'll have in jail. Absolutely. And the teachers up here have been fantastic because it's a hard ask. Can I just ask you a question about the psychology of the people who were engaging in the violence, which, yep. I, which I often sort of worried about, which is, is the alternative, the, the sort of straight and narrow, to use a cliche, alternative good enough? In other words, if you're saying to somebody, you can get, I mean, you said that there's a problem if you're yep. an ex-offender you know, mm-hmm. on your CV and all yep. that, but is the alternative, in other words, I mean, crime doesn't pay, you know, yep. or do people think, well, actually, drugs and all that, Okay, the odds of getting caught are what they are, but you know I make much more of a living. Did you see yeah. what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. I... It's not really as simple as that. So I mean, we mentor people, and I mentor them for 18 months. I mean, it, it's, it's a, this is a long-term thing, right? You know, there's no just you know it's and people fail. I mean, I've had guys who've come on and they've gone and committed another offence. But always say that when you're trying to change your behaviour, it's really tough. For anybody who's went to Weight Watchers and succeeded first time, great. But it's not failure's part of you know, trying to change your behaviour. So I've got to pick them up again and again and again. And you have to because the alternative just isn't worth thinking about. And frankly, I mean, people always say to me, ah, you just need to give longer sentences. Well, if that worked, America would have no crime. Yeah. You know, it doesn't work. It, 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 you know, and it's not working down south. We're having to think very differently around how we sentence you know, we don't want to put people in jail because we know that for lots and lots of people, don't get me wrong, I deal with some really dangerous people and they need to be in jail and some of them for a very long time. But there's so many other ones that are just incredibly damaged. Yeah. Mental health problems, drugs, yeah. alcohol saturates us. And you're moving on now, having had this success, not moving on, but, but, but sort of expanded your remit mm-hmm. to cover the prison population, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, our, our, you know, before we all pat ourselves on our back and think that Scotland's doing great, we still have too many people in prison. We have lots and lots of people who are cycling in for like three, four weeks at a time. We have like a thousand people on remand here. We do not have the problems that England and Wales do. Absolutely not. You know, our prisons are generally well run. There's not the levels of um, violence, yeah. etc., that we have. But still, we, th- we want to look at different ways of, you know, how we return people to community, allowing them to pay their debt because it is a sentence. So, I mean, I, I've, I speak to the judges up here and the sheriffs because we have a feudal system up here. You know, and I, I often say to them, what would it look like if we sentenced people to employment in a redemptive way? What if the first part of their sentence was about dealing with their drugs and their alcohol and their mental health and the next part was about repaying their debt? And part of that needs to be restorative justice because you need to repay your debt. But what if the last part of their sentence 
was wholly about returning them to a community. You know, giving them a place, you know. A guaranteed job. Well, I mean, it's not even guaranteed jobs because no, everybody's got the skills. I mean, I deal with people with poverty of speech, you know, and inability. Some people who've got personality disorders and, and lots of challenging. But they need to be part of something because if they're not part of something, they're part of nothing. And if they're part of nothing, they can do huge damage. And what do the judges say? Well, some are great. I mean, actually, people, people always give the judges a hard time, the sheriffs a hard time. We've got a whole range of sheriffs up here who are starting to sentence really differently. We have problem-solving courts. We're starting to think about how we divert people from prosecution, you know, into you know, different ways of you know, trying to repair them, and particularly around drugs and alcohol. You know, and, but, it's, but we're in the same state as everybody else. There's not enough money. I think we should go to the audience. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, uh, there's going to be... There's two people with roving microphones. Yes, a question right at the back. I can see a hand right at the back. Hi, What's your name? Lara. Hi. Hi. So, um, that's really, really interesting. I was just going to say, how do you think that would apply to other countries or other parts of the UK? Do you think it's something that's applicable to all people? Let's, let's come back to you in one second. We'll take this gentleman at the front. What's your name? Uh, Shash. Hi, Shash. Um, I'm just curious how you feel, obviously, working north of the border, that devolution did it do you feel it gave you freedom to do things differently than down south and make changes that maybe can't happen down south where everything's run by westminster good question so really a question partly about other parts of the country and other places including london which i was going to ask you about has obviously a significant knife crime problem and then devolution i'm trying to work out how to answer this so London is talking to you, yeah? So I used to work in the Met. I was was seconded down to the Met for a while. And and I I do go down to London quite a bit. In fact, I'd been down 26 times. Um, You actually need to decide that you want to make change. And I mean long term. There are no short term things. You know, there's no quick fix solutions. I mean, you know, we we have changed dramatically. It's taken us 13 years. Uh, It's a huge amount of time. And I often say that it's not my job to tell England or London what to do because if the oh, shoe was on. in the other no, but if, if the shoe was in the other foot, and for those who are the Scots in the audience and London were telling us how to do stuff, we'd probably get a bit angsty. And mm. so, but what I do say is there's an evidence base. Yeah. But can I tell you, this actually comes down to leadership. I mean, you really. You, you know, this, I, mean, I know it's going to sound like a, a sort yeah. of stupid politician thing to say, but it sounds kind of obvious. Yeah. When the way you present it, yeah. what is the biggest barrier to it? That it takes a long time, that you have you have setbacks along yeah. the way. Is it that, public opinion? That it's being too nice to it's, nice it's, in inverted commas. It's criminals. everything. I mean, I, I was reading a guy called Adam Gopnik in the, the you know he was in the New Yorker, and he said what, what it takes is a thousand small sanities. You know, there's never one big solution to everything. You need a thousand things, and, and that's very much true of violence. But it's. Um, I mean, it's really interesting. It's such a big overwhelm. I mean, I can see that. When I'm talking about violence, I can see people think, oh, that's huge. Where do we start? So I talk about early years and how, how important, critically important, parents are. There is, is a good parent as close as it gets to being magic without being magic. You know, about keeping kids in school. And it's just sometimes it's just too big. I mean, I have people in three groups. There's those that see the light and say, you're absolutely right and I'm happy to help you. And they're great. You just surround yourself with them. I'm in that group. You're in that group. There's those in the middle that say, right, Karen, I think that sounds great, but can I tell you, that sounds like more work for me. No, I have to convince them. Just in that group. Are you in that group? I can convince you as well. And then there's a group at the end that think, you know something, I just can't be arsed. That group of people... You know, and that's how they talk about the otherization. And I just never go back to say them. I always say that's my leadership mantra. You can lead, you can follow, or you can get out of the way. 
That's it. Big round of applause for that, I'd say. Uh, what about the devolution? What about the devolution point? That must have been part of it. See, I think it probably has. I mean, we've got grip and spanner command up here. There's no two ways about it. So justice has devolved. And that does make it slightly easier to do stuff because there's only five and a half million Scots. Now, we're a bit angry and a bit drunk. But, you know... I, I hadn't noticed that myself, actually. Take you outside. In that shopping centre. Yeah, exactly. We'll go through the West later. They weren't drunk. But, uh, it's, yeah. you know, and it's a really interesting... I mean, I can, shut my, I can shut my eyes. I can actually think what Scotland looks like. I know where I'm going. I've got a direction of travel. I don't always know how to get there. I sometimes think with some of the, you know, and particularly England, Wales, it's so big. Wales is doing some great stuff actually just now. Um, there's a Professor Mark Bellis who's doing some great work around public health. But I think sometimes just England just seems so big. So big. But there are pockets of really fantastic practice. Some of the West Midlands, there's some great people in London who are doing some great work, but it just feels slightly unconnected. Now, that might be just my opinion. But how much of it is what you might call a Daily Mail problem, in the sense of it looks like being too nice to, you know, violent people? For the, for how much of a barrier is that for politicians or not really? I'm not saying it is no, that. Listen, I mean, I, I, I think that is a challenge. I mean, sometimes I'll propose stuff, and people will think, you know, it's just not, the, you know, it's just not the right time to do it. I, I know it is, and, and I think, you know... I mean, I'm politically restricted just for the record. Yeah. But, you know, we hadn't politics, noticed that politics so far, just actually. goes through this sort of thing. You know, you get really bold times yeah. and you have to capitalise on them. You know, so we're just about to bring in, we're doing a lot of stuff around, you know, alcohol monitoring, alcohol bracelets go around your ankle, test the ethanol in your sweat every 30 minutes, electronically transmit it. Incredibly scary. Um, you know, but we, we, we can do things at certain times. And You're not volunteering times, to have one yourself. I have actually worn it. Have you? It did actually prove that I was a very cheap date. Right. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, I mean, there's just times, but... Uh, so a politician who, will, who is very, very famous and will remain nameless oh, once on. asked me... No, I can't. Go I on. Can't. No, I just can't. No. Um, Alex Hammond. No, John Reed. No, no, no. Actually, uh, <laughs> go on. No. Yeah. I was actually down south. Ooh, and, uh, David Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's David Cameron, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I'd said to me, look, yeah. you know, and I was going on about early years and supporting parents and, yeah. and keeping kids in school, and he said, I don't know what you want a politician. I said, well, I don't want a politician. I want a statesman. I want somebody who thinks beyond 10 years. I wanted a naive Evan, yeah. you know. And what did and he say? Well, well, it was just a bit. If wounded. it was a he, a bit wounded, you know. But it's true. I mean, I, you know, and that's the problem. You know, you're never really going to get anything done in the four-year period. So the manifestos come out, and you think, yeah, that's lovely. But actually, anything really worth doing is going to take you 10 years. Now I can talk to the Daily Mail about that. I'm, you know, I'm in, I've got rhino skin. Mm. I, I don't mind that, and I, I'm not looking for a cheerleader. If I get it wrong, they can hold me to account. But I want them to think about this is actually for our kids. And everybody looks at the guys that I work with and they think, you know, they either think they're scum or they're just not worth thinking about. I'm looking at their kids, you know, and I'm, I'm sorry, I can't go into a primary one class where there's all these five-year-olds and think I'm just going to give you the same life as your mum or your dad. And there's nobody, and I work loads in schools, there is no primary one class that I go into where kids are saying, I want to be a gang member, or I want to be in prostitution, or I want to be a drug addict. But that's where they end up. They're not hiding. I mean, you know, they're not hiding. But we fail to prevent. Let's go back to the audience. Hello. Hello, um, I'm Ali. I work in education. I work in a high school. And you've spoken a lot about kind of... What do you teach? I teach English. Great. (laughs) Um, And drama. Um, 
could you tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done specifically in schools yeah. and whether or not you see kind of the freedom that the People Education Fund and its kind of opportunity for head teachers yeah. to but spend money education on whatever. Fund, sorry. It's a People Education Fund, so they worked out sort of deprivation levels. Okay. How many kids were in school? Okay, we'll come back to you in a second. Let's take the other two. Yep. Hello. Me? Yeah. Yes, hello. What's your name? <laughs> uh, hi, my name's Adele. I work in healthcare, so I'm in a position where I get to intervene when it comes to domestic abuse. Um, but I find in my job that the focus really is on making the woman change her behaviour, change her entire life, and there really is no focus on the perpetrator yeah. who is actually causing the problems. Yeah. They tend to move on and start all over again and start a whole new set of problems that we have to intervene in. Oh. Are there any plans... Um, to address the perpetrators of these. Great question. Uh, and, then the, and then on the end, yeah. Hi, my name's Pam, and I'm really interested in issues in terms of the way in which drill music has been associated with sort of gang violence. And I wonder, do you think this is amplification of ve- deviance in relation to the media? Do you think this is scapegoating? Or do you think there is a sort of correlation between listening to a type of music and acting in a violent way? Okay, education, d- domestic violence and the perpetrators, drill music. I'm just trying to remember what the first question was. Uh, about, was education about, about education and schools and the pupil so we, education fund. So we did, because we had lots of young people, and they're not always raising it up to like some of the adults and the teachers in the class, so we ran we ran the big mentors in violence prevention, so we do bystander training in almost every school in Scotland. So we get the six years to train, the fifth years to train, the fourth years, and it's and it's about intervening, about safe ways to intervene. If somebody says something or somebody shows you something on their phone or talks about, you know, in a way about how they talk about women. And it's about equipping all the kids to do it because they're living lives online that we never get to see. And you do this in... We do it in all the schools. So we have wow. mentors in violence prevention and it's, wow. you know, it's pretty much all through Scotland now. You know? Some schools have taken it up more than others, but we, are, you know, we go through it all the time. So we do that. But the teachers have been great. I mean, the teachers do loads of stuff. I mean, you mentioned drama. Drama is one of the big things for some of these kids because it can really engage them because we always look at deficits, don't we? What are you bad at? I mean, Scotland, that's us. We're Calvinists right the way through. We can always tell you the things that we're awful at. But we do that thing, you know, what are you good at? And some of them are absolutely great at drama, you know, and that, that way of engagement. So the teachers have done lots of different things in the schools as well. And, you know, and that's been, that's been a big thing. In terms of the pupil equity fund, I think it's not been out there for long enough. But what I do see is some really trauma-informed training come through. Because... Lots of the primary school teachers, if you think about it, you've got 30 kids in your class. Some of these kids have got adverse childhood experiences, and there's about 10, they call it 10 adverse childhood experiences, so it's things like your parents in prison, drugs, etc. If you've got a kid who's in there who's come from a really challenging background, they arrive at school, maybe not ready to learn, you know that, and they're that almost it's what's called a fixed allostatic load, fight, flight, or freeze. So every time the handle goes, these kids are starting. And so lots of the schools, I mean, I see it's, it's fantastic work now. I mean, there's very few teachers out there that don't know about adverse childhood experiences, that don't know about some trauma-informed practices. So that is a sea change that is going around. So recruiting Scotland. the teachers, basically. Oh, absolutely. And can I tell you, they have stepped up to it because they have a hard job. Absolutely. And I'm asking them to do absolutely. additionality. But seeing the heart of hearts, I think, even though they tell me it's really difficult, etc., they get it. They okay. absolutely get it. And what about the, this point about the perpetrators? Is the perpetrators, being... listen, you're absolutely right. We do a lot of things, you know. So we tend to jail people for a couple of months, three months. So you'll be in jail with other men, probably just like you. You'll be lucky if you get a perpetrator programme. 
I'd rather see a mandatory programme, so you're absolutely right. And we have a Caledonian project up here. There is very little evidence worldwide, really, of perpetrator programmes for domestic abuse that work. But we absolutely must keep trying to develop them. You're right. You know, I often used to say, you know, the woman moves house and the guy just stays where he is. And that just seems completely inconsistent. I'm hoping things change. We've got some new technology coming on. We've certainly got more programmes that are coming on. And there's a real movement towards really trying to address domestic violence and, and some of the preventative aspects as well. But it's, um, it's still toxic. Absolutely. And what about drill music? Drill music, do you know, that's really interesting. I'm not very familiar so, with drill so music. I have to say, I mean, I, I have, I've gone on and listened to it. I have to say, it didn't make me violent. What like, is drill music, sorry? So drill music, it's like a, it's, it's sort of hip-hop, but it's quite extreme. Sometimes there's violent lyrics in it. But, you know, we often say that about hip-hop and rap, etc. And if you look at some of the stuff that was coming out of, you know, the States and East Side, West Side, you know, many years ago, there was lots of that same argument. I don't know it enough. But I think it's not a unique correlating factor. But I do think that if you've got all the other things, if you're angry, if you're, you know, if there's a whole range of other things going on in your life and there's angry music that's full of disrespect, it's probably a bit like pouring petrol on the flame. I'm not sure how far you're going to get by trying to get rid of it all. I mean, that's like King Canute. I mean, you know, I mean, the internet, we sort of lost that a long time ago and social media. Now, we, we've, just to, to end, it's been absolutely brilliant, but we, we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy. Uh, <laughs> it's very much a utopian uh, future. Um, dystopian vision, utopian. potentially. Uh, a utopian uh, future. Uh, um, where Jeff is the sort of not very benign dictator. I think now, I'm very benign. If, if Supreme he, leader. Yeah, yeah. If he was to... If he was but to, I'm very hands-off. Yeah, I like benign dictators. So, so, so I would delegate. Would you? So, so say I delegated... I, w- I, would, I would give you a great office of state. I would okay. make you home secretary with a special remit to reduce violent crime. Mm-hmm. What would you do sort of first morning, day one? Yeah. I'd come out of being home secretary and go into early years. You know? We had, um, we had a Nobel laureate economist who wrote the most impenetrable paper ever. came over to Scotland. His name was James Heckman. Um, and he wrote a paper and he basically said, if you were a banker, now I know nobody wants to be a banker. Um, and he said, you had a pound or a dollar and you wanted to invest it, not to 17. Where would you invest it for the best return on your investment? And what he said categorically, not to three. That's when you invest it. And see, by the time you get to 16 or 17, you'll have to spend £17 for the £1 you would have spent. The challenge is for my political colleagues, that doesn't really win elections, does it? You know, early years. Supporting parents and kids to have the best outcome because if you look at Scandinavia, that's what Scandinavia did. Scandinavia, when they were falling off the cliff, and you know, Denmark and Finland, when they were falling off the cliff, they didn't create more laws and net widen and build big, big, bigger jails. They taxed the population more. Buhis. And then they created these pedagogues, 5% of the working population, there, and a mixture of social work and nurses, and, you know, and 50% of them are men. They're really paid well because they're looking after your most important asset, your kid. And they support every child in the family until the age of eight. And their outcomes are spectacular. Go figure. You give kids, kids communication skills, problem-solving skills, teamwork and compassion and empathy... All the skills that you and you have in here that enable you to get through life without bumming a drink or drugs or alcohol, you know, or 
violence other than the Prosecco bar outside. You know, and it makes you, it gives you all the skills to make good decisions about your life. And they really practice redemption. And I quite like that in a secular way, redemption. I'm not that religious, but I, I do think that you need to give people the chance to repair. So I'd go in early years. I think she's got the job. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Karen McCloskey. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And please welcome to the stage to pitch some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, comedian Louisa Omilan. Wow, you're amazing. Yeah, she is amazing. She's amazing. She should be in charge of everything. I would, I would delegate, really? actually, like, definitely. when I'm Supreme Leader. You'd be sorting out your Sky TV subscription. And yes, she, exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> Make sure my broadband's working. Exactly, exactly. Louisa, thank you for, for coming Thanks and being so with much. us this my afternoon. My mind's just been blown. I would vote for you. I don't even vote, but I would vote for you, mate. I would, would vote for you too. I, I was on holiday, mate. I missed it. Sorry. <laughs> Every election. Every election. <laughs> Um, your your show is called Politics for Bitches. Can you tell us a little oh, bit about it? Oh, it's so boring, isn't it? Politics, yawn, it's so dry. And um, I never really cared for it. And then in recent years, um, I think so many people, so many younger people started becoming more involved in it because you started hearing things like Trump got in power and then Brexit and things happening. And then um, I started watching Question Time and every time I started to watch it... Well, that's not a good idea. Right? (laughs) I tried to watch it and every time I tried to watch it, I felt like I needed a thesaurus to understand what was going on. And uh, a lot of things about politics, I find uh, it can be quite toxic and argumentative and bow, pow, 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 name bashing. And it can also use a lot it's of... It's ter- quite traumatised by the experience but, of Prime Minister's question time. Yeah, definitely, you? definitely. Right, yeah. and then and the terminology they use is quite... goes over my head. So then I was like, how can I make a show that's a bit more accessible, that breaks it down, that really kind of empowers people with information in a way that can hopefully a little bit funny, a little bit entertaining, and um, just empower people with information. And what prompted you to do that, though? The, the, the what was happening in the world? So, there was Brexit and Trump happening. I did a show called What Would Beyonce Do? And then I did a show called Am I Right, Ladies? And I was all about having a thigh gap. And all my jokes were like, love yourself, yay, cellulite, oh, suck my dick. Right, that, that was kind of a, my shows. And then... <laughs> it's a bit like ours, yeah. Yeah. Oh, 
Uh, I mean, it's nice to see we've got yeah. very much the same audience. We should audiences. do more on the thigh gap. Yeah, we should do more on uh, that. Oh, my thighs are touching each other. What? Um, and that's what I used to do. And then last year, my beautiful mummy, who is uh, 64 years old, vegan most of her life, ate really well, super healthy, went swimming all the time, really healthy. She started going to the doctor and she went 12 times to the local GP and they sent her home every time, 12 times. And they said, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong, nothing wrong. And she begged them for a colonoscopy, camera up your bottom. She was into some weird stuff. She asked for a camera up the bottom. And uh, she had to wait six weeks for the appointment, right? And it wasn't long enough to get to be like, oh, I want a quicker appointment. But it wasn't quick enough to make you feel comfortable with the appointment. She waited. She was like, I'm not going to keep up with us. Went to the appointment and it was with the nurse. And the nurse said, "Um, this is not an appointment for a colonoscopy. And it's an appointment with me to see if you warrant one. I don't think that you do. You need to go back to your doctor. My mum started crying on her. She'd lost a stone in weight. She was 56 kilograms when she's five foot eight. And she said, how sick do I have to be before somebody takes me seriously? And the nurse said, I don't know. You're not bleeding. There's people in front of you that bleed and they go home. We took her home. We, I was like, I've had enough of this. It's ridiculous. I'm going to take you to A&E because you keep going back to the doctor and they're not doing anything. And I took her to A&E. And they said, it looks like you've got stomach and bowel cancer. Oh, my God. But you have to, um, we're going to send you home. Uh, she couldn't eat very well, so they sent her home with Calpol. They sent her home with Calpol, and they said, you have to wait to see a cancer specialist. Now, because cancer's everywhere on buses, and everywhere, like, cancer, 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 like, women in bras, cancer, I was like, oh, it's cool, but they sent you home, like, it's cool, you're going to be fine, like, they wouldn't have sent you home, this weird. And they said, you have to wait three weeks to see the oncologist. He only works on Mondays, you have to wait three weeks to see him, but that Monday's a bank holiday. So we had to wait four weeks to see the oncologist, and uh, from that day that we had the scan in A&E, she died seven weeks later. Oh, my God. So, yeah. And I don't understand when there's all this stuff about cancer everywhere and that you have to wait to beg to see a, a doctor who can help you. The fact that she gets sent home with Calpol. That's terrible. Yeah, so I... Um, I Googled it because I was like, I'm going to fucking fix you. I'm going to fucking sort this shit out. Like, right, what do I need? And um, I heard about cannabis oil, which they're legalizing me. So I, um, <laughs> I went and met a dude in Manchester and I wore like a baseball cap and I was like, I'm going to buy some drugs. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I sourced this cannabis oil because people use it in America because it can help. Because all they had was Calpol and we couldn't get a treatment until you're tied into the oncologist so until the oncologist says what you've got you can't access treatment so you can call Mary Curie for as much as you like and they can comfort you but they can't give you medicine to treat somebody that's in pain so I sourced Calpol I started making suppositories in the kitchen um, because with cannabis oil uh, my mum didn't want to get high um, uh, if you put it up your bottom you don't get high but it has the medicinal effects so I'm trying to figure out a way to get up a bum like I'm in the kitchen like a shit Mary Berry like a really poor man's <laughs> Breaking bad, trying to make this <laughs> suppositories. And we treated her with that. And then we went to finally see the oncologist. Told him about the cannabis oil. He said, I can't talk to you about it. I can't. It's illegal. I can't talk to you about it. Um, radiotherapy and, and uh, what's the other one? Chemotherapy uh, won't be an option. So you're going to go home. And I was like, well, if they're not an option, surely we can try the cannabis. Surely we can try like something. And they said, no. And they said, your mum will die not from the cancer, but because of where the tumour is, um, she will starve. So my mum starved to death. Oh, my God. And that took, uh, from the last time she could eat, 
four and a half weeks. Oh, and we were in the hospice. We got into hospice. Hospices are charity funded. They're not government funded. So hospitals are only designed to look after you, to get you well and then send you out. So if you're dying, it's kind of, you're kind of on your own really, which I didn't, again, I had no idea. And this was a education that we got in seven weeks that was like, what? She was fine. She was selling merchandise at my shows. What? And, um, the hospice said, because your mum is so healthy and so strong, it will take longer to kill her. It will take longer for her to starve. And so I found it frustrating, like, well, why can't we try alternatives? If if the what, radio chemo is the only options and they're out, why can't we try alternatives? And this, I've really brought your podcast down, I'm sorry. Not at um, all. No. And then when my mum's dying and she's starving and you're watching somebody starve and they lose their compass mentors, whatever you call it, and they're and this is somebody that paid taxes all their lives and worked hard and did well. And she started um, vomiting her own feces because of the... And I wanted to put a pillow over her face to help end it, to end it. And uh, you can't because it's illegal, because it's immoral. It's illegal to kill someone. And I couldn't understand how... And the nurses wanted to give her a drug. They could give you a drug that they can give you that will send you to sleep forever. So it doesn't kill you, but it sends you to sleep for a very long time. But they cannot give that to the very, 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 very last minute. And these nurses are people that don't want to see this happening to people. They don't want to see people starving to death. But the laws and the ways are put in such a way that it holds... It ties a lot of people's hands back. To give you an idea... When we got my mum out of the hospital, it was the hottest day of the year. She was sweating profusely. She couldn't drink water. I called the nurse. I said, please, could you administer an IV line of water? She came round and she said, um, I'm aware your mum is dehydrated. However, um, in order for me to administer an IV line of water, I will need a prescription from the consultant oh. and he doesn't work on weekends. Um, and I, terrible. And I said, please, she's the hottest day of the year. It's 33 degrees outside. She cannot sip water because it just comes back out. Please give her water. And I did a live video. I, I got the nurse out of my house. She said, I can't do it. My hands are tied. I got the nurse out of my house. I did a live video. And I said, somebody, help, on Facebook, I use social media. I was like, somebody help me. This is England, 2017. I feel like I'm in Victorian times. I don't understand what's happening. And a nurse who'd seen the Beyonce show got in touch. She was like, I work for the local hospital. She came around. She spitted an IV line. She did it illegally. Within five minutes, my mum was, she took her five minutes. Within 20, my mum was sound asleep. We got into a hospital for four more weeks with her. And the nurse said, please don't tell anybody about me. Please don't post my name anywhere because I will lose my job. It's illegal. And then I was like, what kind of country are we living in or who are making the laws or who are putting things into place where it's a criminal act to give a dying woman water and how the fuck are we okay with that in 2017? Because this isn't the UK that I want to be from. And so then I started writing a show about it. So yeah. So yeah. But then I hear people like you and I'm like, oh shit, there are good ones I mean, out there. The, the, cool. Look, you know, it's an absolutely tragic and appalling story, but, and this won't bring your mum back, obviously. But I mean, I do think, and I don't know whether you've done this, if I was your local MP, 
I would want to take this up to the absolute highest level of the of the NHS. I mean, yeah, well, so I took it up to the so I took it up to the Worcester Trust, which is apparently they've got the worst treatment for cancer in the country. So they've got the worst records for cancer treatment in the country for diagnosis and for yeah. um, whatever it's. They've got these yeah. stats diagnosis and stuff, and, yeah. whatever. And then um, I wrote to the local MP. I wrote to Jeremy Hunt, who was the house secretary at the time, and I just wrote the, just the catalogue. Did get, you get anywhere? I got the first letter I got back was we're so sorry to hear your mum passed away where did your mother pay enough tax before she died please can you fill in the self-assessment form on her behalf the second letter I got uh, uh, three months later was a pamphlet from the House of Commons saying sorry to hear about your mother's passing we are doing so much to improve cancer care here is a pamphlet on how to talk to somebody dealing with cancer and here are some stats on cancer in the UK Um, but nobody's taken up the case no. But look, I, I promise you, I mean, I will talk to whoever the MP is in Worcester. And I mean, if you want. Well, we, and, we had, mean, this is lovely of you and it's so kind of you, but we well, spoke to the hospital really. and they said, they said, oh, we're sorry about that. And we're going to implement some change. And the changes we can implement is to be more honest. So because they say we don't want people to think they've got no hope. So we didn't say straight away, oh, she's going to die tomorrow. We didn't, and I was like... But that's not the point. I mean, the point is a catalogue of disastrous yeah, treatment Yeah, and they from said the sorry. They said, they said, they didn't say sorry. <laughs> that's the other thing. People don't say sorry. Because they're worried sorry. about being sued, probably. People don't say sorry. Like, just say, yeah. talk to me as a human being. I'm not trying to get your money, mate. Yeah. I can make my own money. But say sorry. And so they kind of said, um, they apologized if I felt that their care could have been improved and they will put things in place to. Well, look, we will, I will. Well, I'll tell you what I would love you guys to do to shout about. I set up a charity in my mum's name called Helena's Hospice Foundation and we provide home comforts to hospices that are luxuries because they're charity funded. So beds and stuff, they get a standard, not a standard, but that's what their money is. But in a hospice, they want to give you a best life, mate. So my mum used to drink Jägermeister for fun, right? Because of the herbal properties. She was a bit batshit. <laughs> and when she was dying, she was like, I'd love some Jägermeister just to swirl it around and spit it out. And they were like, oh, we've got a drinks cabinet. And I was like, what? And they've got a drinks cabinet. And I was like, do you know what? This is what I want to do. So our charity, if you want uh, 25 bottles of vodka Cointreau Jägermeister, mate, and you're in a hospice, we and will send it to you. just for people to contribute, because we'll make sure people do. Yeah, uh, Helena's, Helena's Hospice Foundation. And if people Google that, they'll find they'll it. They'll find So we send, like, televisions, okay. if they want Netflix subscriptions, if they want, like, duck feather down duvets, they can have duck feather okay. down duvet, mate. Okay. They can die in, you know, luxury. Okay. So that's what we do. And that's, so. go- and that's what got you into politics. And then that's what got me into this bloody boring show. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But not this show, I mean my show. <laughs> yeah. Not your show, my show, my show. Not your show. Now you, and as you, as you started looking into it, did, I mean, did it, did, did, does the country seem as bleak Oh, yeah, it like, did? it's even worse, but it's so oh, no. dry. Like, we're so but, fucked. But you've brought some, but you've brought along some ideas to cheer us up. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> Go on, what, what are your ideas for making the country a better place? Oh, it's so boring. These are all political ideas. Because no, that's not, good. Yeah, but it's like, not boring. Like, yeah, but it's so boring. Last year, my, my ideas would have been like, oh, free Chinese food for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and now they're like, it was exactly what Karen said, where um, I think a lot of it is um, invest in children. Like, not to 789, invest in them and have completely 360 free holistic care. So Not holistic, like complete, all holistic. So free education, excellent education, medicine, psychology, home, roof over their head, Food, diet, 
everything because a lot of problems we're seeing are generational so you inherit things and I don't think we had this problem but we kind of do and you see it with like is it is LeBron James in um, in America who's set up a school where he's like free education free food uh, free things for all the kids and what you're doing there is you're taking away the generational things that you're like oh well my dad worked in a in a coal mine and so I'll work in a coal mine and then my son will work in a coal mine you go mate I'm gonna put you on a plane and you're gonna be a bricklayer and they're like woohoo and it's a really bad <laughs> metaphor, but I think you know where I'm going with it. <laughs> so I think invest in children, number one. Great. Yeah. All right, uh, number two. Number two, make paternity leave mandatory. So make paternity leave mandatory. So then when a woman is going for a job, right, because A, women are stupid and they go, oh, I'm not good enough. I don't know. I mean, I've only got 25 years experience, but I don't know if I can do that. Oh. <laughs> Whereas you get a guy being like, I've watched a program on it. I'm sure I could be. Like, they don't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, the difference is insane. And I feel like it will encourage... That's only true of Jeff and me. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, we listen to a podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, here you yeah. are. Exactly. It's worked for you. And it, but that actually works for a lot of people but I'd like to see more women like that and I think it will take it will, A, it will encourage employers to no longer go I'm going to go for the guy because you're 32 and you're probably going to want a baby soon and it will mean that women will be encouraged to go for jobs because they're not going to be fearful of oh shit I might have a baby soon and also men will then be like oh shit alright I better fucking like, learn how to change nappy then if I'm going to be at home not that they don't all know how to do that I'm sure well, you do well Jacob Rees-Mogg could, be, could benefit from that uh, like, a man who famously yeah. never changed a nappy yeah oh I thought you meant he needs his nappy changing no 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 no, no. I mean uh, he does need his nappy yeah. changing that would be a low blow how long paternity leave well, three months six months they do it three months in Scandinavia don't do they? they yeah but they can take more than that I think right yeah why can't we do why can't we do it to, for Equal. Six, to nine, six to nine months both of them six months both of them why not why? What? Because this thing is, they go, oh, it costs you, it costs you, mate. It's costing us already. Because look at the side effects of what we're doing now by not doing that. So we're already hemorrhaging totally, money yeah. on it. So yeah. let's just do that. It'd be nice. Great, good. And also, it, I'm sure it totally speaks to Karen. I mean, I'm sure it totally speaks to what Karen was talking about earlier. But as so well. many people have been saying that it's like experts that are saying this wasn't my idea. I just spoke to somebody else that knows about it, and they said it. So I was like, that sounds really logical. Let's do that. And you've got one, I think you've got one other. What was my last one? I can't remember. Oh, give everybody free travel for a year after they come out of school. Free travel. So you go... <laughs> Not like a gap year. Not like, so you don't pay for the accommodation, but maybe you go, we're going to give you 5,000 air miles. And we want you, because you want people to live and work with people that don't look like and work like you do where you are. Yeah, very, totally true. Do that. Totally true. And I just think it will open people's minds a bit and just get them out of their own bottom. And it will just make, it will encourage people to be like, oh shit, I met this Asian dude. Guess what? We're really similar. What? (laughs) (laughs) Well, isn't that a surprise? And and what made you come to that idea? Um, Because my mum is a foreigner and she was from Poland. She came over here and only after she died do I go, wow, I'm a fucking idiot. I've been going like, I'm British, I'm British, I'm not Polish, I'm British. And actually, I only have the life and the the honour of talking to you guys and doing the show I do and being able to make a career out of doing stand-up comedy because she left a farm where she used to fucking milk cows to come over to England to have a better life and meet new people and meet different people. And thanks to her, I've got all this. Like That's from her travel and her brave and her big eyes and world eye view. And so I think, wow... Wouldn't it be nice if everyone had that? So, yeah. 
Yeah. I think we buy those, don't we? Yeah, we'll have them in the Jeffocracy. I think I'm voting for you, by the way. Oh, thank you. I think I'm voting for you and Karen, actually. Don't you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I'll be your um, wing, not wing, I'll be like your your left hand. You you know what you're doing, so I'll just be the, I'll get the coffees and I'll do that. Louisa. It's been great to have you. You've been absolutely brilliant. Louisa, thank you so much. Thank you. Now, I think as they used to say on Blue Peter, or maybe it was Play School, it's time for us to go now. Uh, it was Sooty. Oh, was it Sooty? <laughs> it was ITV. I wasn't allowed to watch it, actually. Uh, I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah, bro, You've yeah. been an absolutely brilliant audience. He's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you very Thank much. You.